All right, hi friends, how are y'all? Wonderful, I think. Someone was like, oh, okay, whatever. Okay. Um, hey, if you have Bibles, open them up. We're gonna jump. We're gonna start off in Isaiah 46. Read a few verses there. So if you've got Bibles, open Isaiah 46. We are in week three of a six-week sermon series called Vitals, which is on the doctrine of God. Really trying to understand God's essential character, uh, which can be understood in, in taking part in, in kind of two sub-forms. God's greatness, his transcendence, uh, and his goodness, his eminence. And so in the first three weeks, we've been looking at primarily the attributes underneath his greatness. We're going to do so and continue to do so here today uh, by looking at one. But to keep this in mind, remember that in week one, what I said is, for most of us who are believers here today, we see the right things, right? We understand God. It's kind of blurry off in the distance. We understand that. We see it. We see the right things, but we don't see it rightly, meaning our lens is maybe not as focused as it could or should be. And so a, a study of the doctrine of God and his essential characteristics helps us to clarify that lens so that we can see not only the right thing, but we can see it rightly. Last week, what Alec talked to us about, and I thought he did just a tremendous job while I was at the pastor's retreat, um, he talked about God's holiness. And the idea, the main idea he tried to get across is this. Holiness is the lens through which we see God's character. And so the thing that really helps us to focus in on who God is, is thinking about his holiness, that God is other. It's not just that he's, he's better, he's completely other than who we are. He is a holy other being, and we in fact understand our being in light of who God is. That was last week. This week, we're going to deal with uh, a topic that's really popular among college-age peoples, and it's the idea of God's sovereignty. Uh, it's, a, it's a characteristic which fits neatly underneath his greatness, and we're going to look at what that means in just a few verses here. But sovereignty gets talked about uh, in life groups. It gets talked about in coffee shops. It gets talked about, talked about on blogs and in different discussions because you want to have a conversation about God's sovereignty and human free. Let's try that again. God's sovereignty and human free will. That's right. And all of a sudden, Will, will Adderley was like, me? Me? Right there? Will in the back? Okay. That was a bad joke. I'm starting off on a bad foot here. Let me, let me reel that back in. So God's sovereignty, human will. How does God's sovereignty impact our will? How do we understand this in light of all these things? And so we're going to jump right into this topic. Before we jump into the topic, I want to invite you to pray with me. Jesus, as we think about who you are, as we think about who we can understand the Father to be in light of what you've taught us, that God, the triune God, is sovereign. I pray that it wouldn't just be some academic exercise that we could, uh, that would lead us to some type of perspective or some type of theological camp, but that, God, we would understand that knowing more about you, seeing you rightly, understanding your sovereignty would bring us such a sense of peace in how we live our lives, would bring us such a sense of boldness in how we share our faith and how we disciple people, that it would bring us such a sense of confidence about who you've made us to be, and that we do all of this for your glory, for our good. The good of the people we're going to impact in Orlando. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 46, we're going to look at verse 9 and 10. And then we're going to flip over to a verse in Psalm. Because I wanted to find a verse that helped us really define what sovereignty is. Uh, what I don't think is helpful is to go to the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy and look up what sovereignty means there. I think it's good to look at what the Bible says and help us arrive at a, a helpful definition from what the Bible says. And here's what the Bible says about God in terms of his sovereignty, or just a couple of verses. Isaiah 46, the prophet writes, or is writing on behalf of God, so I guess God is writing through the prophet here. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Okay? So the idea we get from here is God, there is no one like him. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees everything. Um, he, he's the one who's established all of this stuff. There's none like me. He does what he wants. This is kind of who God is, right? So you're starting to get this kind of idea that in God's otherness, he kind of has some type of abilities that seem to be different than every other being that we would understand. And this becomes more clear when we look at something from Psalm 115.3. You want to take some time to flip over to Psalm 115.3 or you want to Google search it, that would be great. Uh, Psalm 153 is probably the clearest um, poetic uh, biblical text on God's sovereignty. It's a great psalm to memorize. I want to encourage you to memorize that and make that uh, a verse in your life. Psalm 115.3, I hear pages flipping and apps swiping. Uh, hopefully those are the good apps that are swiping. So here we go. Psalm 115.3, here's, um, here's what the psalmist writes. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Uh, another translation says this. This is the English Standard Version. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, right? This is the clearest definition of God's sovereignty. Who is God? God is the only being in the universe who does as he pleases. That's what it means that he's sovereign. He does as he pleases. God looks out of the day and goes, what do I want to do? I'm going to do it, Right? This is how God operates. This is how God thinks. This is how God acts. He acts on his good pleasure. There's nothing restraining it or constraining it. He just, as he pleases, he moves. And this is how God operates generally in the scope of life. And so that helps us to arrive, I think, at a, at a fairly helpful definition. It's the definition I'm going to pass on to you, my definition. And here it is. If you have sheets, you can fill this in. God alone has all authority and all power. God alone has all authority and all power okay so there is a uh, there's an authority aspect to his sovereignty there's a power aspect it's it's he's not only willing to do things he's also able to do things okay uh, he has the authority he gives to himself in order to act in certain ways without fear of consequence he also is empowered to do all of those things and with both of those together considering that they're they're not um, restrained in any way, that gives this idea that he is sovereign. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. So um, really what sovereignty does, when we get at that definition, is it, is it answers a question we think about from time to time, and that's this question here. Um, who is ultimately in charge, right? Who's in charge here? And um, the best way to think about this is during, um, you can think about how this plays out practically, during President Obama's tenure from, you know, uh, you know those eight years, there would be these moments, right, where something would go bad in the world, and it's when memes are just starting to happen in the internet, and this was an early meme, right? Like, you know, you'd wake up, it'd be raining outside, and someone would go, thanks a lot, Obama, right? <laughs> or like, you go to McDonald's, and they're like, you're like, hey, I want some french fries. They're like, I'm sorry, we're all out of french fries. And you'd be like, thanks a lot, Obama, right? And you're trying to say it now, you're like, thanks a lot, Trump, but given his, his approach to things, that could also mean a lot of other things there. I'm not trying to get too political, but it was a lot easier when it was Obama, because Obama did, like, did nothing wrong, right? He was like the nicest guy in the world. But what we're appealing to here is this idea that Obama, during those eight years, was ultimately in charge, and so if anything went wrong under his watch, he's responsible. We're saying something about him. He's sovereign, right? So anything that goes bad, you go, thanks a lot, Obama. Anything that goes good, you're like, hey, thanks a lot, Obama. Good job, Barry. Man, that was great. That was awesome, right? And you're, you're appealing to the fact that he's sovereign. And so 
this definition that God is all-powerful, he has all authority, it's answering this question, hey, who is ultimately in charge of this whole shebang-a-bang? It's God, right? He's in charge of it all. So anything good, anything bad, anything neutral that happens in the world, we can say rightly, well, thanks a lot, Jesus. Thanks a lot. Oh, it's raining today. Why rain today? Jesus, right? You don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, rain, let me talk to the weatherman. You go, Jesus, why are you making it rain today? This is why, just as a little kind of crude aside, this is why God terms have made their way into cuss language, right? Where someone will just be like, Jesus Christ, right? And they'll say it in a really bad way. Well, why, why doesn't someone just say like, oh, Joseph Smith, right? Or whatever, like pick random religious figures, right? Because you're ascribing the reality that Jesus is ultimately in charge. And so when you're trying to curse someone, you're trying to curse Jesus. Why? Because he's in charge, because he's sovereign, right? When people say GD and they just say that, it's because they're ascribing something even in their, their crassness. They're ascribing the fact that God's ultimately in charge. And so this is sovereignty. And this is the way sovereignty works uh, in our context. Another way I, th- I thought about how to, uh, how to explain this um, is in the oversimplified way of answering the question, who is in charge or how does this work? Um, I'll tell you this story and try to answer it. Uh, I have this friend named Amin. Uh, my friend Amin, he's one of my best friends. He's from Morocco. And so his dad's like this short, old, you know, wispy, gray-haired Moroccan man who has like a real raspy voice. And uh, whenever he would come over to our house, like they'd come into the States, they come over to our house, um, his dad would just be like, oh, hello, dog, nice to meet you. Oh, so good, right? Just real tender and cool. And Amin says growing up it would be very frustrating. And his dad's real smart and everything, but Amin's curious, and so he'd be like, um, Dad, uh, why are eggs in the shape that they are? And his dad, being a Christian, would go like, Oh, Amin, because God made it that way. And he'd be like, that's an unsubstantial answer, Dad. I need, like, there was no Google back then. He was like, oh, okay, right? So Amin wakes up in the morning. He's like, you know, Dad, why is the train we live on curvy? Because God made it that way, right? And so for everything, it was like, well, God made it that way. And we think about that, and we go, that's a little oversimplified. And so I want to just do this kind of thought experiment here as I was thinking about trying to explain what we mean that God is sovereign. And I, I thought about this the other day. We were driving around after the hurricane, after the rains came through, and there was this one rainbow. Uh, maybe you saw after the hurricane, there's this giant rainbow everyone's posting on. We saw it. And my daughter goes, look, Daddy, there's a rainbow. I was like, oh, cool, there's a rainbow. Like, that's awesome. I'm taking pictures. I'm singing the double rainbow song. I'm like, this is awesome. And my daughter goes, Daddy, where did rainbows come from? Or why? actually says, why are there rainbows? Daddy, why are there rainbows? And I thought of my friend Amin's dad, like, because God made it that way, right? <laughs> right? And I was like, oh, but my daughter, she's a smart one. She's not going to take us and be like, Dad, I know God made it that way, but why are there rainbows? And so I looked it up, and here's the answer I gave her. Um, I called my friend who's a physicist. His name's Physics Matt. I called Physics Matt, and I'm like, Matt, I need to know the lowdown on rainbows because my daughter's curious, and because God made it that way, it's not working. So he's like, okay, I'll tell you. Basically what happens is that a ray of light, as you know, a ray is something that has a definite starting point but then goes on towards infinity. That's a light. A ray of light, as it travels through any type of object, it can kind of go in one of a couple different ways. But when a ray of light hits a rain droplet, um, it does two things. The first thing it does is like a prison, it refracts and it gets separated into all of the various colors that are going on there. And so you can imagine like this, this band of rain that's hitting and several rays of light are hitting it, they're all refracting, and they're refracting at exactly the same rate, and so all the colors are spreading at exactly the same rate and forming co- something there. But you wouldn't be able to see any of this if the ray of light wasn't doing a second thing, which is called, it's basically rebounding or it's reflecting against the actual drop of rain. So it's like splitting and then bouncing back 
towards your ocular viewpoint so that you can actually see it. So that's what's happening there. It's the ray of light splits and then poof, there's like a rebound back towards you and it's happening like, like constantly or whatever as the rain is falling. And that's a rainbow, right? And so I explained this to my daughter and she was like, what? Like, why would you explain it to me like that way? I know I'm five, but that, that just seems like it's like a little much. And so she's like, so wait, what are you saying? And I got to the end of it and I was like, because God made it that way, Grace. That's why, that's why the rainbow works that way because that's how God made it. And guess what? Both of those answers are true, right? Because the way I'm describing light refracting and reflecting is simply just describing the mechanics of how God has created the universe. But ultimately, when it's all said and done, the reason a rainbow looks the way it does and acts the way it does is because God made it that way. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's ultimately the one who's in charge. He's in control of all things. He's all-powerful, and he has the authority. And one day, he was just like, after the earth got flooded, he was like, what can I do to help my boy Noah out? Well, okay, I could, I, could, I could design a flag like the Dallas Cowboys, and I could wave it around, and he would be happy, right? Because, you know, everybody loves the Cowboys or whatever, right? Um, or, or, wow, <laughs> Jay was like, easy, I'm from Texas, calm down here. That's right. Doug is not wrong in this sense. Um, Right? He's thinking, oh, I could do all these things, but instead what he does, he says, I'm going to create a rainbow. I'm going to make a ray of light go through some raindrops, and it's going to reflect and reflect, and Noah's going to see it, and I'm going to tell him, Noah, I did this so that you know I'm never going to destroy the earth. And he's like, thank you, God, right? That's why I did things, because God is sovereign. So that's a long-winded way of saying this helps us understand this. Here's a better definition that I think can help us arrive at something working so we can begin to uh, unpack this philosophically and make some application, and it's this. A better definition is this. God is the only being who can do whatever he wants to do. God's the only being who can do whatever he wants to do. Or what we wish we could do, God does. Think about that. We all have these wishes that, you know, if we can't go to sleep at night because we've consumed far too much caffeine, right? You know, it's, if you're, if you're me, it's like 8.30 at night. Some of you are like, oh, that's early, right? For some of you, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. For some of you, it's like 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, right? Whenever you're going to sleep, just imagine your head hits your pillow, you're, you're trying to drift off to sleep, and you start to play the wish game. You're like, man, I wish I could do this. You start dreaming about all these things. So I just, just kind of wrote some things down. We wish we could just be unattached and travel. Anybody else have that wish? You're like, when I graduate, there we go. When I graduate, I'm putting on a backpack, even though I've never worn one before. It just looks fun. I'm putting it on. I'm going to Europe because apparently that's where you go once you put the backpack on. There's no other second step. It's like, you put the backpack on, I got to go to Europe. I mean, that's just what you do. So you go to Europe and, oh, I want to be unattached and I just want to travel all across Europe and just go as far as my money will let me go, which is basically to the airport in Europe and back at this point, right? We all think about that. We wish we could be unattached and travel. God can travel anywhere. In fact, God sees the whole universe all at the same time. He's like, I'm in Europe, I'm in Asia, I'm in Antarctica, I'm across the galaxy. This is awesome. I'm seeing it all right now. I like, look, and there it is. It's everything. It's everywhere all at the same time. God's not limited by our wishes. He can do whatever he wants. We can wish it. God can do it. And he does it all the time. And he never stops infinitely. It's amazing. We wish we could have no consequences, right? I want to live in a world where there's no consequences. If I don't like someone, I just punch them in the face, and I don't go to jail. This is awesome. I can just pu hate punch anybody I want, right? Or maybe you're, you're not so, like, aggressive about things. Maybe you're just like, I just want to, like, run really fast. I want no consequences. I can fly. I, can, I don't want to be bound by gravity, right? We like to dream about these things. God has no consequences on his decisions. 
both because he chooses perfectly and because he's the one who ultimately you're consequential to, right? He's the one who establishes consequences. He's sovereign over consequences. He can do what he wants. We wish we could have all the money in the world. God has all the money in the universe, both because he has created the idea of value and all monetary systems which try to measure it. We wish we could have superpowers. God has all power. He gives power to all things. He's the great empowerer. We wish we could be happy all the time. God isn't limited by happiness, instead existing as the source of all satisfaction and the one who perfectly satisfies. What we wish we could do, God does. And the fact that he's able to do all of that indicates something about his nature, and that is he is all-powerful and has all authority. And by that, we mean he's sovereign. He is sovereign over all things, always has been, always will be. He's sovereign. So I want to begin to unpack this practically, because anytime you start to think about God's sovereignty or talk about God's sovereignty, essentially one of three questions is going to pop into your mind. No doubt they're already in your mind right now as we're thinking through this. And here's the first question here. Number one, where does God's sovereignty impact my human abilities? What's the extent of God's sovereignty? Does he limit himself? Is he involved in all things? Does he determine them? Does he cause them? Does he permit them? Does he allow them? Is he checked out? Did he create the universe and disappear? How does God interact with humans? Do I have ability? Am I just a puppet? Am I like Pinocchio? Is this a video game? Is this the Matrix? Is it the Matrix 2? What's going on? Like, we're thinking through all these issues, right? And here's how I maybe want to answer this. If, when you're talking about the idea of God's all power and human ability, because our experience tells us we tend to be able, we're able to do things that have consequences if we make Good decisions, there are good consequences that flow. When we make bad decisions, bad consequences follow from that. And it seems like we have some sort of what philosophers call agency. We can cause things to happen in our own environment. And so is this just a myth? Is God really controlling that? Or how does that interplay and work out when we talk about this? And there's three options you can kind of think of. And they can be um, defined in terms of math equations. Either God is greater than human beings, in which case we just say, God is great, we're not, he does all things, we don't, he's the big one. It's 99% God, 1% us. It's 99.99999% God, it's one us, right? So however you want to divide it up, that's basically your scheme in which God is always very strong and you are very weak. Um, this type of thinking tends to lead to the person who wakes up in the morning and goes, God, what socks should I wear today? And then he listens and he doesn't hear anything, and he's like, I've missed God. Oh, no, what have I done? Well, but it doesn't matter. He's gonna, his will's going to be done anyway, right? It's, it's that one. You're, you're not really sure how to quite act with a God who's that strong about things. And, you know, th there are all those things. Number two, uh, you can say that there's a less than situation. God is actually less than me. He may have created everything, but he disappeared and kind of gave me a lot of freedom to, to act and to make decisions. And so when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, sparkly socks. Yeah, I don't care what the Bible says, sparkly socks today, right? I'm wearing them. I may not even wear socks today. How about that, God, right? So it's the person who thinks, yeah, there may be a God. He may be out there. You have agnostic friends. This is typically how agnostic friends operate. Like, yeah, there may be a God, but he doesn't really interact with us. And so I'm just going to live however I want to live and basically try to be a good person and kind of operate that way. What I think the Bible says, and if you have more questions about this, I want to encourage you to come to master class because we talk about these issues at, at length. What I think the Bible says is that, that 
the relationship between God and humanity is greater than or equal to. So it's the little Pac-Man sign with the, the dash underneath it. That God is greater than or equal to human beings. And by that, here's what I mean. I think God is greater than human beings. But what the Bible seems to suggest is that God empowers human beings to, to some extent, be co-creators with him in the way we operate in this world. Great example, week one, we talked about this. God created the animals. He brought them up to Adam and said, what do you want to name them? And Adam goes, I want to call it a horse. And he said, so be it. It's a horse, right? And so in that sense, God uh, bestows to human beings a, a, a very strong agency in the way that they operate, right? And so where this boils down to when we think about God's sovereignty and human free will, if it's free or not, but just at least God's sovereignty and human ability, we might say this. God is the one who initiates. We're the ones who cooperate with him. God initiates, we cooperate. God initiates, we cooperate. The way that he manifests his sovereignty in relationship to human beings is he's always the one initiating things and inviting us to cooperate with him. We never initiate things to God. We're, we don't come to God and go, hey, God, you may not have thought about this, and so I'm just going to do you a solid, and I'm going to tell you you should be doing this. Don't at me later about this. Just, just do this thing, and we'll be on a good page. We don't do that with God. The posture we take towards God is he says, hey, think about this. And we're like, oh, that's a great idea. Thanks for telling me, God. And then we cooperate in what he's doing, even in prayer, even in prayer. And I'll use prayer as an example here, okay? You might think, you know, you're in a life group, and someone brings up a prayer request, right? It's like, hey, I'm having a bad week. I want you to pray that, uh, you know, I get through my test, or I'm struggling with depression this week. And you are sitting alone by yourself, and you're like, you know what? I should pray for that person. It would be the right thing to do. And so you go to God, and you say, God, I want to pray for so-and-so who's struggling with depression. And you would think in your mind, man, this thought just hit me, so I'm going to tell God about it. He probably hasn't thought about it in a while because he's got all these other things to do. So I'm going to tell God, do him a solid, and then, you know, we're going to be good. No, no, no. Here's what happens. Here's what you got to remember. The fact that you're praying in that life group means that you value prayer. And so you have to ask, why do I value prayer? And again, you say, because God made it that way. Yeah, because he made it that way. Because in the Bible, he says, when you pray, you should pray like this. Jesus literally teaches people how to pray and says prayer is this thing you should do regularly you should pray without ceasing so the very fact that you are praying in a life group is because somewhere way before you ever existed god created the idea of prayer and he put that inside of you so that every time you pray you are already cooperating with something god has already started initiating in you so that when you pray and god moves and answers that prayer in a positive way this isn't like hey god remember when i told you we should do this and you're like that's a good idea and you made it happen no that's not the scheme at all the scheme is God said pray and you're in a life group and you go ooh, in response to what you told me God I want to pray for this and you bring it to the father and he says yeah we're making that happen boom and then it comes back he's initiated the idea you've cooperated with him in this this is how God tends to manifest his sovereignty in working with us he's initiating we're cooperating with him he's initiating we're cooperating with him in every single detail of our lives all the time so where does God's sovereignty impact my human abilities? In the matrix of initiating and cooperating. And if you need a cross-reference here, I might direct you to Philippians 2, 12, and 13, where Paul just says this, if you want to look at this later. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, what Paul's saying is, do, like, you should really be about your own discipleship and spiritual growth. But remember, God has initiated that discipleship process in you in the form of sanctification, and he's going to work it towards glorification. Bam, right? He's talking about this idea there, so I want to encourage you towards that. So that's question one. Question two, where does God's sovereignty impact Satan's ability? 
We've talked about how God interacts with, say, uh, with humans, but what about with Satan? And the reason I bring this up is I hear college students from time to time bring in a lot of what I would consider to be fairly erroneous theology in the way that they process through decision-making. For example, the most common way I tend to hear college students talk about this, especially as they see the right things, but they haven't quite seen them rightly yet, uh, is they, they bring up like, how many of you guys have ever seen Emperor's New Groove? Any fans of Emperor's New Groove? Okay, y'all are Christians, good. Um, so that was a test, by the way. That's one of our doctrine tests. Like, have you seen Emperor's New Groove? Okay, not a Christian. Here we go. No. Um, there's a character named Krunk, right? Krunk's trying to make a decision, and he's like, oh, what do I do? And then he has the angel Krunk and the devil Krunk, right? And he's like, oh, good, evil, what do I do? Ooh, right? And a lot of college students operate this way, but the way that they tend to bring this out in Christian terms is they say, God, Satan. As if God and Satan are these equal forces, ultimate good and ultimate evil, and they're waging war in the battle of your soul. How will you choose, right? That would be the teaser trailer for how that, that movie would play out. But we think this way, right? We're like, if I make good choices, God wins, and he wins this epic battle. If I make bad choices, God, uh, Satan wins, and God loses. And so i got to make good decisions in order to please God, which is us working towards the cross. And remember, we don't work towards the cross. We work from the cross. So this, this, this is obviously not a great conception it's also not what the bible teaches about god god and satan are not equals okay god is sovereign god is the sovereign being which means satan is someone who exists within god's created realm he is an angel that makes him a class two being god is the class one being humans are the class three being so he is below god in that ranking system satan is someone who is a created entity god is uncreated he's sovereign over all of this and so God's enemy is not Satan. Satan is not really our enemy as much as he is our adversary, or he's the accuser whose job is to just walk around, be like that, that noisy friend we have that's just like, oh, yeah, you can't do this, you can't do that. What? He's, he's an accuser, he's annoying, he gets in our cases. But he is not the enemy uh, of God in an equal dualistic sense. God is sovereign over Satan. And that should bring hope to us, and I just want to make a little aside here, right? Because I hear college students from time to time say things like this. Man, I'm just really afraid. Like, I'm just, Satan's getting on me today. I'm just so afraid. Can, should I talk to Satan and tell Satan to go away? Should I claim promises towards Satan and tell him to go away? W should I interact with Satan? And my answer is always the same. It's no. Like, right, who's ultimately in charge here, right? The appeal to Satan is like, not going to do anything. You go straight to the Father about that mess, right? Like, God will handle your lightweight in that situation, okay? If Satan is messing with you, you don't worry about that. You just go straight to the Father in prayer and praise, and you go, God, uh, handle him. Handle this, because this is noisy over here, and I'm, I'm upset, and I'm afraid. Can you please just take care of this? And the good news is God's sovereign. He will take care of that. He'll take care of that. And I thought, of, I was trying to think of a good picture of what I think prayer looks like, especially when we're praying for God to handle Satan, because they're not, you know, the same, uh, uh, on the same plane there. And um, I thought about this scene from a film called Major Pain. Any f uh, people seen Major Pain? So Major Pain is about this army major uh, played by Damon Wayans who uh, he, he's killed everybody. So there's like no bad guys to kill anymore. So they put him in charge of this like boy's home. And he has this little kid who lives with him. And he has no paternal instincts at all. I mean like zero paternal instincts. He's a major and he's like a tight task like army person. And so... In this scene, the little kid keeps coming in as he's having this heated conversation. He's like, there's a monster in my closet. He's like, get up to stare, get up to bed. There's a monster in my closet. Get back up to you know, bed, boy. And he's, 
So finally, the boy comes in the last time, and the major can't take it. And he's like, there's a monster in my closet. And let's just watch how the major operates. Take a look at this. Still there! You want to see nurturing? Incidentally, when my daughter is scared of the dark, this is basically the kind of thing I say. I'm like, listen, we're going to pray to God, and if there's a bad person in there, he won't be happy, right? Because this is what happens, right? God's sovereign over Satan, right? So if Satan wants to accuse you, I'm serious. If Satan wants to accuse you, look what Jesus did. He didn't mess with Satan. He just quoted scripture. He just went straight to the Father. You don't have to deal with Satan. God is sovereign over him. You just go to the Father who wants to take care of you, and you tell him, I'm having a rough time in area X. Can you handle it? God's sovereign. He's not going to play that. Now, he may not pull out a gun. I don't know that God's pro-violence. I'm just saying. But he will handle it in his own divine way. I don't know how that works. Okay. Finally, what we've, we've addressed, where does God's sovereignty impact my human abilities? Where does God's sovereignty impact Satan's ability? And finally, this is the big one. Where does God's sovereignty impact the problem of evil? There are evil things in the world, right? Bad things happen. We see all the time. There's a guy in las vegas who decides to just open fire in a concert it's evil right people get cancer and they die that's evil there's just evil going around what do we do about all of this and how do we understand a sovereign all-powerful god who is sovereign over all of these evil things and so as we as i try to just address this question and i'm by no means going to give you a complete answer on this but as i try to just weigh into this let me exclude natural disasters and phenomena from this okay when I talk about evil things, I, I'm not classifying natural disasters as evil. We just had this hurricane that came through here, right? Uh, and I don't want to minimize the fact that there were lives changed and people died and it was really dangerous. But uh, what I do want to say is this. I moved from Texas last year to here. And when I got here, uh, the first thing I had to do was change my car insurance. And anybody who's moved to Florida and has to change car insurance, you're filling out the form, you get to a section that's like, okay, just understand, it's going to be way more expensive. And you're like, why? And they're like, hurricane. And you're like, what? So like my, my car insurance, my family's car insurance doubled. And I was like, what's the deal? They said hurricanes. I was like, oh my goodness. I went to go buy a house. You have to get a hurricane inspection to get your house insured. And all houses built after 2005 have to like be able to withstand the Armageddon. I mean, I'm serious. That's like the actual language in there. It's, it's unbelievable. Why do you have to have hurricane and wind protection and all this extra insurance? Because Florida exists and has exists currently and has existed for all of known human time in a hurricane alley, right? Hurricanes come through every year. And so the fact that humans move here, we all implicitly make this bargain with God. We're like, God, um, I want to move to Florida. Like, could you make it not hurricane there? Could you make it not rain every day? And he's like, nah, bro. And you're like, okay, let me think about this. Disney, beaches, they have generators, right? Yeah, I'm good. I'm there, right? And that's what everybody who moves to Florida says. They go, I will deal with the hurricanes a couple months out of the year if I get Disney and beaches and 70 degrees year-round and I get to go to First Orlando. I am good, right? 
You give me those three, four things, I'm, I'm fine with that. We, we um, as a side, my wife is from Oklahoma, and there are parts of Oklahoma that get her, that, uh, tornadoes that come through every year. Again, it's been happening for all of time. So human beings kind of assume some risk when they go into those areas. Those are less evil decisions than those are natural disasters. So what I want to target in on is truly evil decisions. And the way that we're going to talk about evil decisions is to give you this definition. There's, uh, the only thing that's evil is an, a human decision. Think about anything that's evil. Evil comes when there are human decisions. Humans are the ones who bring evil. Uh, murder, rape, uh, uh, horrible deaths and tragedies, anything you can think of that's evil. Hitler, the Holocaust, um, mass genocide, sex trafficking. These things we tend to think of as like uh, uh, aggregate evil. These are all human beings perpetrating this. If you remove human beings from the universe, you would inevitably remove evil and what we understand to be evil from the universe. Evil is so intimately bound up with the human decision-making process that it's hard for us and it's hard for philosophers to separate those two. And so as an oversimplified way, I just want to make sure I say, I think when we talk about evil, we're talking about human decision-making. And therefore, what we're asking is, how is God's sovereignty impacting when humans make evil decisions? Which may make it a better way for us to ask this question. Um, how can God be good and sovereign and allow humans to make evil decisions, right? And here's, here's the way I would answer that question. I would say God's sovereignty over evil is this. Number one, that he could have created a universe without the possibility of evil. God, when he created this whole thing, he could have said, okay, and this, and under this, you know, through this door right over here, we have a universe where there's no evil, and through this door, we have a universe that may contain evil if humans choose to accept it. So in this universe over here, humans have no freedom of the will. They're robots. But if I'm going to give humans the possibility of choosing or rejecting me, therefore choosing or rejecting love, therefore choosing or rejecting goodness, then that means they're going to be able to choose evil. And so although I could create this universe or this universe, especially this universe where there's no evil, I'm going to instead create this universe where evil exists as a possibility that humans may um, bring about. And this is exactly what we read in Genesis, that humans bring about the first sin and the first bad decision, the first unloving decision, and that's what happens. God could have created another universe, which makes him ultimately responsible for the fact that there is evil in the world, okay? So why is there evil? Because God made it that way. He's sovereign over it, right? And I don't like that answer, but it's true. He could have done otherwise. But in terms of the secondary things, why or, or how evil begins to manifest itself? Why is there evil? Well, God decided to create a universe when he could have done otherwise. How does evil exist? Evil exists because out of love for humans, God has permitted them to choose good and evil, to choose love and not love. And so where God's sovereignty impacts this idea of evil is that although he could have done otherwise, God chose to create a world where evil happens as a result of humans making bad decisions. And that sounds like a bummer, and it sounds like a downer. But the Bible is clear over and over and over that this is the kind of universe we live in. But that's not the end of the story. Because if you remember, God is the God of the gospel, the good news. And the good news we find is actually found in Romans 8.28 about this issue here. So on your screen, it's going to pop up. And Romans 8.28 says this, God works all things, including evil things, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. 
even when humans do evil things like Newtown, like San Bernardino, like Las Vegas, like the Pulse shooting in Orlando last year, even in that, God uses that and God it works through that to bring about good from that evil massacre. And not to belabor a point about kind of domestic terrorism or some of these things that happen here, but let me just say this. Uh, I first got here when the Pulse shooting happened, and it was just a, a terrible tragedy. At First Orlando, we had not only um, people who were there who were at the club who were shot, victims, we also had people in the SWAT team who went in and, and rescued people from there. And I think I may have told this story before. When it was all said and done, we had our... Uh, Hispanic pastor Israel Martin here, and Israel just and his team went and ministered to a largely Hispanic-speaking or Spanish-speaking community and brought a lot of Pulse victims in. We baptized, you know, tens of people from the Pulse tragedy who've joined our church in membership, joined a life group, are on a discipleship track, are getting discipled, are getting poured into. In fact, in January, I think we created a whole life group just for Pulse victims, okay? A whole life group in our church is just people who are united by the fact that they were in the Pulse tragedy. It's a wonderful thing. But the best story I can think about this is one Sunday after church, a woman came up to Pastor David, and she had, like, she was walking, and you could tell she had some things going on. And she basically says in broken English, I was in the Pulse tragedy. And Pastor David, you know, if you know David, he's real, like, friendly. He's, like, going to give her a hug because that's what he does. He just loves people. And she's like, no, 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 I'm frail, I'm frail. I, I got shot a few times. I'm still healing. So she's not letting Pastor David hug her, Right? And so he's like, okay, and he's having the conversation. Well, Pastor David has uh, bodyguards that uh, are there, security detail, because occasionally you have people who, like, rush up. They're like, hey, I made this, uh, you know, I whittled this, like, gun-shaped piece of soap. I want to bring it to you, right? And I painted it black, so, you know, and, you know, it's just like, what's going on? Like, there's just some people who sometimes do some weird things. And we love those people, but we have to, you know, set boundaries. And so he has security detail there to just watch for some of these things that happen. Well, one of the security detail happened to be one of the SWAT team members who went into the Pulse. And it was the very SWAT team member who pulled this girl out of the building. And so this girl who wouldn't let Pastor David hug her sees the man, and she runs over to him and hugs him and just basically says, thank you for saving me. Thank you for, and he's like, you know, he's like a burly guy. So, you know, he's like, he's like doing this, and he's trying to hold together. But she's crying, he's crying, David's crying. You know, everyone who's down front's getting a little misty-eyed, like someone's cutting onions. Like, it was just one of those moments, right? It's just this beautiful picture of reconciliation and redemption and community working together. And I just thought to myself, that was a horribly evil thing. God, I wish you would have prevented that from happening. But in the fact that it doesn't seem that you did, you are working something so terrible. You're working it together for good. People are being baptized, experiencing life change. And there's amazing life groups and ministry that are happening. And people who were once in the Pulse Club are now beginning to lead in, in our ministry here at First Orlando. And so even in spite of all of this, God's sovereignty over evil, just know he is working all things together for his good, for our good, and for people who love him. Let me make some application points here, and then I want to invite the band to come back up. I want to make four application points here, and they'll be on your screen, and they're in your bulletin. Remember, God being sovereign means that he is ultimately in charge. He has all authority and power. He's the only one who can do whatever he wants to do. And if this is true, if God is really sovereign, I think that means at least four things for us practically. And the first one is this. You can sleep tonight. You can sleep tonight. Uh, Psalm 3.5 says this. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And I remember when I was in grad school, we had this duplex in the really, really bad part of town where we lived. Um, there is... We moved in because the rent was 
just right, uh, which is what a husband says. It's like, hey, man, this rent is only $75 a month. Nothing could go wrong. Let's move in. Come on, my new young bride. Let's move into this very dangerous part of town. Um, and so we moved in, and um, the first month we were there, um, someone broke into our house and stole my laptop. It was the first time I'd ever been broken into in my life. If you've never been broken into, if you've never had your house broken into, you don't sleep after that, right? Especially if you're like me, my personality type, I'm a protector. I don't, if someone messes with my family, I'm just like, like looking like I'm doing perimeter searches. I move into like full-on Jason Bourne mode in the cafe where I'm just like checking the exit, sight lines, who has a gun, can I get that, right? And so I remember we came home and we called the police, we did the report and all that stuff, and I was freaked out. So Natalie went to sleep and I couldn't sleep, so I just woke up and um, I had just purchased a Nintendo GameCube. Anyone remember that? Okay. And I had NCAA football 2003 on it. And so I put on Baylor and I bumped up their ratings because they weren't very good. And I was like, okay, I'll make them really good. And then I just like plowed through the Big 12 and like won a national championship. I played 12 seasons straight because I couldn't sleep. And it was spring break. That was my first spring break in seminary. And so Natalie would go to work, and I'd be like, bye, baby. And I would just be up and awake, and I would be doing perimeter searches, checking the locks and all that stuff, looking next door at my neighbor who broke into my house. And I was like, okay, whatever, right? And I just remember I could not sleep. So I go to my pastor, and I'm like, I, can't, I haven't slept in three days. I, I think I'm going to have to go to the hospital. Like, I was having problems. Um, and I remember he read me this verse. He said, listen, you can sleep tonight. You want to know why? And I was like, because they caught the person, because they're putting security detail in my house, like, president's men are coming in what's happening he said no because god's sovereign and because he's sovereign you can sleep at night so don't worry about going to sleep you just lay down and sleep and if you wake up tomorrow guess what you have another day and if you don't you're in heaven with jesus either way god's sovereign and so if you trust that he's sovereign go to sleep and i was like you got me oh okay right and so i started sleeping and it was great and everything was good and eventually we moved out of that house and you know we moved on, and now I do premarital counseling for husbands, and I go, hey, let's talk about rent. Um, so, <laughs> verse six, uh, sorry, the next one, if God's sovereign, not only can you sleep, you can remove yourself from drama. You can remove yourself from drama. Ooh, we got a silent amen. This was a millennial amen. It was, ooh, ooh. Mm, there was like a mini testify, testify, that's going on. Here's what uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 5. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. See, most of you who are here because you're beautiful and you're smart and you're going places, when you see drama as a believer, you're like, I'm inserting myself into this. Yeah, we're going to clean all this mess up. Jesus, right? That's how you work, right? And if you've got roommates, if you've got friends, if you've got coworkers and you see drama, you're like, okay, cleaning the floors. Oh, I bumped into you. What's going on here? A dispute? Okay, let's sit down. Let's talk. Do you have a 15-minute break? Let's go, right? And so we, because we love Jesus, we insert ourselves in all of these things. And I, listen, there's a time and place for everything. Maybe God wants you to, like, step into this situation. But here's the thing. If God's sovereign and it's not your drama, you don't have to step into that drama. You can remove yourself from that drama, right? Because God doesn't need you to be sovereign. He's sovereign. Do you know what you get to be? Not sovereign. You get to be the person who's just like, God, I see this because you made me smart, and I can tell there's something going on here. I already, like, Sherlock Holmes, the junk out of that situation. I know what's going on, and I know the solution, but I'm not God. And so I'm praying right now that you will handle the situation, and you remove yourself. Do you, do you know how much better your day would be if you just removed yourself from drama? Some of you would be like, it would be boring, right? And it will be a little boring. It will be because you'll just be like, what happened today? Nothing. 
everything was wonderful. It's kind of boring, right? But this is the kind of world God wants you to live in. He doesn't need you to, to go to work and go to battle on his behalf. He's sovereign. He got this. He's been doing this long before you're alive. He'll be doing this long after you're dead. He's sovereign. Number three, not only can you sleep at night, not only can you remove yourself from drama, you can focus only on what you can do, not on what you can't do. You can focus only on what you can do, not on what you cannot do, okay? Some of us get frustrated because we do the comparison game. Well, they're doing this, and they're ahead in class, and this person got the job, and there's a promotion, and why can't I do that? And, oh, I'm a terrible person, and I feel judged by everybody, and oh, right? And you're always focusing on what you can't do or what you don't have. Listen, God's sovereign here, okay? If he's sovereign and he's in control, he's going to do what he's going to do, which means you got to do what only you can do. You can't do what you can't do, right? But you know who can do what you can't do? God can do what you can't do. So you just focus on what you can do, and that's all he wants you to do is focus on what you can do. And just to read you a a pretty lengthy passage here, if you want to look it up later, in 2 Samuel 12, this is when David has slept with Bathsheba. She's pregnant. The son or the the baby is having an issue. Um, There's a medical emergency. And so, so, uh, so David is like praying and trying to figure out what's going on. So this is what the passage says here. Um, You can pull it up. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. So uh, mama's in trouble. David's David's crying out to God. He's fasting, shaving the head, all this stuff, doing what he can do. Okay, he's doing what he can do. Um. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke uh, to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And And watch what David does here. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. The first thing he did is he went in and said, God, you know what? You're sovereign. I've done what I can do. You've done what you can do. And now I'm going to just keep orienting myself to this reality. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. They don't understand. They're like, why aren't you doing more? Can't you do some more? Shouldn't you be upset? Shouldn't you be ashamed? Shouldn't you feel judged? Shouldn't you be upset about yourself? Shouldn't you be doing, right? They're just like, they're creating drama. He's removing himself from drama. Why? He knows God's sovereign. He, I don't have to do that. And here's what he says. Verse 22. While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Answer, no. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, David is saying, I've done what I can do. God's done what he can do. We're good. And so God's sovereign, just remember, he's going to be able to do what only he can do. You can do what only you can do. And that's how that's going to work together. Finally, last thing, and then I want us to sing. You can pray expectantly. You can pray expectantly. Um, And the psalmist writes this, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you, and I wait expectantly. If God's sovereign, and he's all-powerful, and he has all authority, 
And when you pray to him, you don't just say, hey, God, if you can, if you're able to do this, it'd be really nice if you could do this. No, if God's sovereign, when you pray to him, you pray expecting, thinking any minute he might move. Why? Because he might. Because he can. Because whatever God wants to do, he can do. One of the reasons that we have a prayer time at the end of every gathering here is because we believe God's going to do something maybe immediately when we pray to him. And so as we have our response time here, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song together. And I want to invite you, if you have something going on, we're going to have our staff down front. We'll have guys for guys and girls for girls. I want to invite you to practice the sovereignty of God. And if you have a prayer request, come down and find us. We would love to pray with you and pray expectingly for God to move in your life. This is your time to respond. Either you sing, uh, either by uh, getting prayer, either by singing there contemplatively. But you have one song to respond, and then I'll come back up at the end to close us out.